A certain man of Zorah named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now, see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came on him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came on him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With the donkey's jawbone I have made donkeys of them. With the donkey's jawbone I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramoth Lehi. Samson led Israel for twenty years in the days of the Philistines. Stand me against something. Lord. Quiet. Lord. If I am yours, remember me now. Strengthen me once more. Your God has abandoned you, Samson. Your God has deserted you and taken your strength with him. No. I can see him more clearly than ever. He wants me to destroy you all! It's over, Samson!
live dependent upon other people. All of us do that. Even the most independent person in this room understands that you are dependent upon people. So when you turn on the faucet, the water that comes out is drinkable and clean. When you send your children to school, you depend upon the teachers. People in Haiti are depending upon people all around the world for help. All of us live in dependence upon others. Perhaps the way this is illustrated best is when we ask someone for help. When we say to them, uh, will you help me do this? Will you get that? Uh, Etc. When we're asking people, we are showing our dependence upon them. And I've come to learn as I think about my own life and look at others, what people ask for, how they ask it, tells you uh, something about their character and what they think of the person from whom they're asking for help. We've all seen the child who is constantly asking his or her parents, I want candy, I want toys, I want you to shape your agenda for my life, you need to play with me, you need to be with me. And when you look at that child, you realize that the child probably needs some more training and probably sees their parent as some kind of benevolent gift giver whose life is to make their life happy. It tells you something about the child and about the parents. Now, when I was in school, and I hate to say this, it was always a girl who at the end of class would say, teacher, you forgot to give us homework. What is our homework today? Now, I was convinced she was not interested at all in academics. What she was interested in was getting the teacher to like her. So it told me something about her and what she thought of the teacher. And then there are kind of those innocuous areas of dependence where we say to someone, will you give me directions? You just purchased that car. Tell me about it. Was, what do you like about it? What don't you like? Or help me with what you've done with investments. Or you seem to be good parents. What can you teach us? And then there are those people who look at someone and they honor them. They respect them. They revere them. And, and they say, how can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I make what you're doing easier? That tells us something about the person. Now, they're dependent. They want to have a relationship with that person. They want that person to like them and to admire them. But how we ask is a reflection of our character and what we think of the person that we're talking to. Now, when it comes to prayer, prayer is God's way of saying to you and me, I want you to be dependent upon me. He's the creator. We are the creature. And the way we demonstrate dependence upon our God and upon our creator is by coming to him in prayer and showing that dependence. And I'm convinced the way we pray tells us a lot about our character and what we think of God. To illustrate this, I want to talk about a judge. Of all the judges, he's the most famous. In fact, he's even famous among all the people of the Bible. And people who've never gone to church, people who've never read the Bible, know about Samson. We talk about someone having Samson-like strength. We've seen the movies about Samson. We've heard about Samson and Delilah. Now, if you think about it, out of all the characters in Scripture that are human, remember, Jesus was both divine and human, but out of all the characters in Scripture who were human, 
Samson is a true superhero. Now, when I was growing up, we didn't have a lot of superheroes like they have today, where almost every other movie is about a superhero. We only had a few. And my superhero was Superman. I mean, after all, he did fight for truth, justice, and the American way. That was Superman. He was on every half hour, uh, half hour every week on television. But the other reason why I like Superman is other than for kryptonite, which, of which there isn't much on earth, nothing could stop Superman. He was almost unstoppable. In fact, as they have made movies about Superman, they have often done poorly, and the critics have said, the problem is there's no threat to Superman, and you have to make the threat so galactic that people don't believe it. Superman could pretty much do what Superman wanted. And when you read about Samson, in that sense, he was like Superman. He literally was an army of one against the Philistines. But I want us to look at Samson this weekend in terms of a man of great extremes. On one hand, we talk about his strength, his agility, his ability to lead and defend Israel. But there's another side to Samson. It's obvious that God blessed Samson mightily. We're living in the times of the judges. And again, Israel has disobeyed God. And God has allowed foreigners to come in and dominate them to get their attention to bring Israel back to him. This time, it's their perennial enemies, the Philistines. And for 40 years, the Philistines have been dominating the nation of Israel, taking what they want of their harvest, taxing them, manipulating them, making Israel a vassal state to the Philistines. And they cry out to God, and God says, all right, I will send a deliverer. Only this time, the deliverer is not even born And God comes to a woman who is barren and says to her, I'm going to do a miracle. You're going to have a baby, and this baby is going to be very, very special because he's going to be Israel's deliverer, and God knows that he's going to give him powers that no other human ever had. And so he says, I want you to really set this baby aside as a child so people understand he is different. He's always to eat kosher. He's never to drink anything that's fermented. Don't ever take him to funerals. He's not to be around dead people. Don't cut his hair. He's going to be a Nazarite. And I want to distinguish this man, who's going to, this boy who's going to grow up to be a man, from all others. Because I'm going to give him these special powers. And it is obvious that God is very gracious to Samson. God comes and gives the same message to her husband. And when they offer a sacrifice to God, who has showed up as a human being, God disappears in the flames and the man thinks, we're going to die, we've seen God. And her husband's, the wife says, no, God has a plan for us. And Samson is born. And even while he's a young child, God begins to work on his, in his life. But just look at some of the things Samson does. On the first encounter on the way down to Philistia, as, as Samson is going to become involved with the Philistines, as we heard in the scripture, he's, he takes a lion and he kills him. He gets involved with the Philistines, there's an altercation, and he kills 30 men. The Philistines are so angry about what Samson does that they take the woman he was going to be married to and give her to another. He is so angry that the Bible says he catches 300 foxes. I was thinking about that. Think of the speed. Think of the agility. 
And my perception of foxes is most of them don't want to get caught. And he catches them, puts them in pairs, 150, ties a lit torch on their tails and sends them through the harvest. And in one fell swoop, all the Philistine grain is gone, all the Philistine vineyards are gone, the olives are gone, and he begins to destroy the Philistines. They become so angry that they send a thousand men against him. And as again, we heard in the scripture, he takes that jawbone of an ass and he kills them. Later on, he's down in the city of Gaza. The Philistines think we have him, we'll get him in the morning. And in the middle of the night, he comes to the city gates, he picks them up, picks the pillars up that the gates are, are hanging on, takes the iron bar that's with him, puts all of it on his shoulders, and carries it up a hill. Samson was a man who was highly blessed by God. But Samson was also a man of extremes. And he had a dark side. You see, when he's of marital age, he says to his parents, I want to marry this Philistine girl. Now, here was the one who was the Nazarite. All his life he had been raised in the most conservative manner. In fact, he kind of reminds me, we, we've seen parents who want to raise their children in a very protective environment. And so they protect them biblically and religiously and culturally and educationally and every other thing. And then when they're about 18 or 21, it's party time. And they rebel. That's kind of like Samson. God said, don't marry foreign women. You're, that's against my law. But he goes down and says, I want a Philistine woman. And because the marriage gets disrupted by what the Philistines do, in anger he kills, he, he ruins the harvest. A thousand men come against him, he kills them. Later on he's visiting prostitutes, he's visiting women that uh, he's not married to. Samson has this side that is so different, so dark. And the question you have to ask, why does Samson whom God has blessed mightily. Why does Samson live with this other extreme where he feels he can do anything he wants to? Well, in Samson's life, his 20 years of ministry as a judge, there's a prayer of Samson at the beginning of the 20 years, and there's a prayer at the end of the 20 years. And because prayer shows dependence upon God, as we look at those prayers, I think it tells us something about Samson's character. It also tells us something about what Samson thinks of God. He has just killed the thousand men. It's harvest time. It's hot. It's dusty. And he is literally almost dying of thirst at the top of a hill. And I want you to notice, as I read his prayer what he says. Look with me. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. So the spring was called in Hakore, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. When Samson comes to God, he comes to God and he says, God, hey, I've done what you want me to do. I've fought the Philistines. Now, you've created the victory, but I've done my part. And I'm dying of thirst here, God. 
It's time to give me something to drink. You see, I think Samson's prayer reflects the fact that Samson, because he was so blessed, it had created within him a sense of entitlement. God, you must do this because you need me. God, you must do this because I'm doing your work. And God's blessings in Samson's life had become a curse because they were no longer, from Samson's perspective, given graciously, but they were given as a right, as something that is demanded or expected. If you think about prayer, prayer probably involves at least three major elements to it. Hopefully when we pray, we honor God. God, you're lovely. God, you're good. God, you're awesome. And just as we brag on our children and we brag on our spouse, we brag on our team, hopefully we brag on God and we say, God, we want to honor you. Part of prayer should also probably be thanksgiving. God, thank you for what you've done for me. Thanks for what you've done in the past. God, thank you. But much of our prayer is related to asking. Because in the asking, we show our dependence upon God. And so we do pray and we say, God, will you do whatever we ask for? Now, Samson comes along and says, God, I'm dying of thirst. Give me water. Now, hear me well, folks. I don't think it's wrong to ask God for physical needs. In fact, if we go to the model prayer that Jesus gave us, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. It is legitimate, Jesus says, to pray for physical needs. It is also As we look at the Apostle Paul, when he would write to the churches, he said, there were times when Timothy was sick and you prayed for him. Epaphroditus was sick and you prayed for him. There were times when you gathered money and you sent for my needs in response to God's care and my prayer. So when Samson comes along and says, God, give me water, that's not the issue. The issue is the motive for how Samson asks. Because you see, for all of us, It's amazing how the blessing of God often becomes a right we demand. When my son was growing up, he had a lot of good attributes, but he had some bad ones too. And one of them was, he would never clean his room. I mean, from the time he got out of the crib till he went to college, the room was never clean. I was saying, clean the room, clean the room, clean the room. And finally, in frustration, I remember when he was about seven or eight, I said, if you go in there and clean the room, I'll take you to Dairy Queen for a milkshake. Because he liked Dairy Queen milkshakes. So he cleans the room, at least as for him it was clean. I'm not sure for us, but he cleans it. So I take him to Dairy Queen. A few weeks later, the room's mess. I said, go in there and clean the room. i tell you what, I'll get you another milkshake. About two weeks later, he comes out one day. He said, Dad, let's go to Dairy Queen. I said, why? He said, why clean my room? (laughs) The blessing had become a right. And there always had to be a milkshake for the room to get cleaned. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about it, but we as Americans, out of all the Christians in the world, are the most blessed people. 
I mean, I've often thought, what would it be like if I was born in Haiti? What would it be like if I was born in the lower caste in India? What would it be like if I was born in some poor African nation where every day we had to walk miles for water, where the whole day was spent concerned about having enough food to eat dinner that night and to hopefully have a roof over our head? So when it comes to blessing, just being born in this nation is a blessing. In fact, I don't know who the poorest person is in this room, but whoever that person is, over 90% of the world would look at you as a millionaire because they have to walk for water. And even then, the water's not clean. They have to scrounge for food. We can at least drive. We can, if there's enough change in the bottom of our purse, we can stop at McDonald's at least for the dollar meal and get something to eat. We are rich people. Then we come to Christ. We come to church. We expect the church to have great worship. We expect the church to minister to our children. We expect the church to minister to our teenagers. We expect when we come in, there's going to be people to greet us and refreshments out there. And that's all great. But the problem is, when those things become rights that we demand, the way to test this is to look at our prayers and see what happens when God doesn't answer our prayers. As I go across the country and talk to pastors, one of the things pastors say to me, they said, Paul, most of our prayer meetings, most of our prayer gatherings, most of the times when our small groups pray, it's all about something that's missing in the life of the person. Would you heal? Would you provide the money? Would you get a job? Would you help my child get into this university or college or would you help this and and again there's nothing wrong with that but how do we act when God doesn't answer that prayer I remember when I first became a pastor and I get to the church and you know I'm just out of seminary and that's for somebody that's pretty heady I mean to think I get to preach every Sunday what's more amazing is people show up and pretend to listen And what's even more amazing is they pay you to do this. And so, you know, when you get to church, you say, ah, this is awesome being a pastor. And then after five, six, seven months, I realized this thing isn't as good as I thought it was. Because the leaders of the church, what they're saying to me is, Paul, we want you to preach, but we also want you to visit. We want you to counsel. We want you to meet our needs and make sure our children are cared for on Sunday and there's a good youth program. And as long as you do that, everything's fine. But when it comes to reaching out to our community, when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to helping to say, God, we are put here to reach the lost, they didn't want to do that. Oh, they were willing to pay missionaries to go and do it. But we're not going to do this. And so I said, God, I don't want to be in this position anymore. Let me find a church that's different than this one. So I sent out resume after resume after resume after resume. A whole year went by. Nobody ever responded. In fact, I checked with the post office. What's wrong? And then there was this ministry that opened up. And I thought, that's a ministry that's going to be fulfilling. That's going to be exciting. And I applied for it. And they said, 
we, we're interested in you. By the way, there's only two of you up for this position. For about six, seven months, went through all the interviews, all the stuff, and on a Friday, the man who was doing the hiring called me up. He said, Paul, Monday morning, I'm going to interview the other person, but you need to know it's a mere formality. I'm going to call you when I'm done, and you will come down, and we're going to offer you the job. So I'll call you Monday morning. So Monday morning, I'm sitting in my office. By the way, Sunday, I, I was delighted. I was going to get out of there. I was going to leave and have a decent ministry. Monday morning, he called, and he says, Paul, I don't know how to explain this, but I just gave the job to the other person. I'm sorry, but it's taken. When he hung up the phone, I was there in my office all by myself. And I literally cried. Not just out of frustration, but out of anger. God, you haven't blessed me. God, you haven't met my need. You see, when God doesn't answer our prayers for what it is we think we need, it demonstrates that his blessing in our lives haven't come because he's a gracious God. But we perceive them as rights, as expectations that God needs to meet. And when that happens, it says a lot about us. And it says a lot about what we think about God. Because I find many Christians see God as a big sugar daddy in the sky just dispensing favors and goodness. And I think God does want to give us good gifts. And I think there are times God meets many of our needs. But he does it for his grace and for another reason than just so that we'll be blessed. Samson gets involved with all these women. He finally gets involved with Delilah. The Philistines say to her, if you will find out his secret, we'll pay you well. And so like some kind of torture test, every time he's with Delilah, what's the secret? What's the secret? What's the secret? What's the secret? And finally, he gives in and says, it's my hair. And while he's asleep, she takes his hair and cuts it off. The Philistines rush in. He gets up, says, I'm going to beat him again. But he can't. They capture him, put out his eyes, chain him to a grinding wheel like an animal. And then they throw a celebration to their God. Because you see, in Samson's day, if your army defeated another army, and Samson was a one-man army, if your army defeats another army, it means your God is better. In fact, notice what they say about their God in the celebration that they give. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, who, by the way, was a fish god with a human head. Their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who has laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. So they throw a celebration to their God, saying, Obviously, Dagon is greater than Yahweh. They say, let's bring Samson in and make more sport of him. And as we saw, when Samson's brought in, he's put by the main pillars. And I want you to notice the prayer that's recorded at the end of his life. Look at this. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, sovereign Lord, basically God above gods. Remember me. Please, God. Strengthen me just once more. 
And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple and the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Very different prayer. God, you're the God above all gods. God, I don't even know if you'll remember me. I hope you'll be gracious. I hope you'll be merciful. And yeah, God, I, I do want revenge. But God, I want to die in a cause for you. The other prayer was, God, let me live. I deserve to live. In this prayer, God, I want to die for you. Prayer reveals our character and what we think of God. In March of this year, I was working with a congregation in Sydney, Australia, congregation of about 100 people, been there for many years, and the city is just growing up all around it. Within a block, block and a half at the most two blocks, they're just building these massive apartment buildings. People are coming in from Asia and Europe and all over the place, just filling the place up. And this little church of 100, and they felt so alone, so isolated. And I said to them, do you realize that most of your prayers are about you? God help us. God bless us. God do this for us. When you look at most of the prayers in the Bible, they're not about us. They're about God and his will. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to be praying that God will help us help his kingdom to be realized here on earth. And so, on a Sunday morning, the entire congregation spent a whole service in prayer where they literally got on their knees and said, God, forgive us for focusing on ourselves. Help us to be a group of people who want to see these thousands come to Jesus. And after the service, in groups, they walked the two blocks, praying for people, praying for these apartments, praying for row after row. God, will you help them come to you? Will you help them come to you? Will you help them come to you? God, will you help us reach out to these people? I was back in Sydney in June. Young lady, late 20s, early 30s, stood in front of a group just like this. She said, uh, we weren't sure we wanted to pray on that Sunday morning. <laughs> I mean, we love Jesus. We read the Bible. We've been going to church. But we realized we needed to get down on our knees and say, God, help us not to focus on us. Help us to focus on the lost. And then she said, we broke up into teams. We walked around. She said, I remember praying for these apartments. And then she started to cry. She said, you know what? God's already sending unbelievers to our church, and we haven't done anything else. You see, prayer reveals who we are and what we think about God. We do need to pray for needs, but we need to spend far more time praying that the kingdom of God will be realized 
by 2,500 people on these campuses every weekend? What would it be like to drive the community on a Sunday? What would it be like for small groups every three months to go out and to prayer walk their community and say, God, help us reach the lost? And Samson changed his view on God and his view on himself. He accomplished far more for God in his death than he had ever accomplished in his life. Let's pray. God, help us not to have to learn the hard way like Samson did, but help us to be people who focus on you, your mission, and your desire to want to use everyone in this room in, on any of the campuses to reach out and to do your will of seeing lost people come to Jesus. May that happen for your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.